Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris, and it's with a heavy heart that I speak to you during a very difficult time in our society that many of us hope will later be seen as the turning point in America. I know many of you are hurting as I am hurting. Over the past few months, we have watched COVID-19 impact families of color at a starkly disproportionate rate. And most recently, we have watched the senseless killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Sean Reed, and Tony McDade, and frankly, countless others, all add to the emotional toll of our nation's shameful history of racism. These separate tragedies add to the layers of pain and loss, and when viewed together, they clearly speak to the need for meaningful and long-lasting change. Over the past two years, we at Access and Opportunity have released episodes featuring black entrepreneurs and investors who are battling the systemic prejudice that continues to restrict access to capital for people of color. While these conversations have been earnest and revelatory, they are also modern day examples of the legacy of bias as multicultural entrepreneurs are disproportionately denied capital at staggering rates. Join me as I revisit several episodes with entrepreneurs and investors of color who have shared their experiences navigating economic systems that are consciously and unconsciously biased against them and the ways in which they have overcome barriers to success that exist simply because of the color of their skin. I'd like to take us back to our very first episode of Access and Opportunity, which featured Richard Lou Dennis, co-founder and CEO of Sundial Brands. In the episode titled, From Harlem Corner to Household Brand, Rich shared with us how he transformed Sundial Brands from a small business into a multi-million dollar empire. He walked us through his decision to take an outside investment from Bain & Company, and then the ultimate decision to sell his company to Unilever. Despite Rich's early success, like many black founders, he was met with hesitation from investors who were reluctant to put money into a product serving African-Americans, a demographic they did not understand. It took 25 years and growing from a few thousand dollars a week to hundreds of millions of dollars before he was able to attract outside capital. Let's yeah. talk about expansion. Yeah. How'd you get that capital? What did you do? Yeah. How'd you think about it? Yeah. Well, so the first piece was capital wasn't available to us, and it's not for lack of effort. So we actually didn't get any capital until we did our Bain deal in 2015. Wow. So how did you try, though? You said you didn't get outside we, capital. How yeah. did you know? What, what made you say it wasn't available? We talked to many private equity firms who either didn't see the vision, didn't understand the mission or didn't see the opportunity to serve a consumer that they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so were reluctant to invest behind it. Mm -hmm. And then those that did saw it with so much risk that the capital they were willing to put in came at such an expensive cost that it really didn't make sense to do it, right? It was so costly that we would have had to have given up our entire business in order to do that. And at the end of the day, this is also about creating wealth for our families mm -hmm. and for our community and not just for investors. Mm -hmm. Those options just weren't available in the way that we needed them to be available. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we had built a business that was already several hundred million dollars in revenue that we actually found 
partners that were, and we found an incredible partner in Bain that was willing to give us capital at the cost that our contemporaries got capital at. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that you went from a few thousand dollars a week to uh, hundreds of millions of dollars before you were able to attract outside capital. How did you drive the business between points A and point B? Was that all just internal investment? Every time you made money, you just put it back into the business and you incrementally kept growing? Yeah. So this is my favorite part of the story. So my mother, who's still our treasurer today, would collect all of the revenues and would pay the electric bill, the water bill, would buy the food. And for four years, that's all we did. So nobody took a salary. There were 12 of us living in a three-bedroom apartment in Queens. And we plowed every dollar back into the business Mm -hmm. that wasn't necessary to survive. Mm -hmm. So there was no stipends or even allowances, let alone a paycheck. (laughs) There was no, you know, you couldn't gain weight because if you gain weight, the clothes that you have wasn't (laughs) going to work. So so for four years, we lived in a moment in time, right? Um, And that created a discipline around cash flow. That Mm -hmm. created a discipline around where you invest. So we would literally go out and sell on a street corner today take that money, come back, and go buy supplies for tomorrow mm-hmm. and, and just repeat that cycle. And as we built the business, that just became a normal thing that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a discipline that I try to, you know, not everybody has to be as dramatic with it as we were, but I think that's a discipline that many, many entrepreneurs, uh, especially entrepreneurs of color, need to pick up on, right? Mm-hmm. Because... The work that we're all trying to do now to bring equity and parity around how we go out and raise capital is going to take some time to get where we need to get. And we're getting there and we're moving rapidly, I must say. But there is no substitute for discipline in investing back in your business Mm -hmm. because you raise capital and now you give up something for that capital, which is equity. And as you give up that equity, you have less and less of a return to yourself. That's right? right. You have less and less when you do exit, when you do do larger transactions, you lose out on maximizing your wealth. Mm-hmm. And so I caution people to A, make sure that you absolutely need the capital and B, that you get the capital at an affordable price. Mm-hmm. But C, and most importantly, that you're not taking capital you don't need. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to your decision. You said it took you three years to decide whether or not to take on outside capital and to take on outside capital. And I want to pivot into that. But let me just make a statement because I want to make sure that our audience understands the gravity of what you just said. So one of the reasons that they probably were the ideal partner was, first of all, you had a firm that had a philosophy that was open, willing to listen, willing to learn new things about new markets that they didn't necessarily understand, but more importantly, had already embraced having inclusivity at their table in order to understand the gaps that might be in their own thinking. And that came in the form of Governor Deval Patrick. And then being able to have him open enough to listen to what you all had to say, understanding the gaps and understanding the translation he needed to make from you as an opportunity to the asset allocators in the end of the day. So for 
those who are investors, again, I can't underscore the point of the way that you find these outsized market opportunities, because I would argue Sundial is an outsized market yeah. opportunity when you think about the returns that Bain made, especially on your next transaction, the Unilever, which yes. we'll get to. Yeah. They wouldn't have seen that if they had not been willing and open and look at a market that they didn't really understand that they might have perceived had inordinate risk when, in fact, had far less risk and an outside opportunity. Exactly. And for entrepreneurs listening, I want them to understand, again, the power of the relationships, your initiative, your ability to make the conversation, and being steadfast in the things that you really cared about, but also flexible enough to understand what you needed to do in order to be attractive to that kind of capital. It's a very valuable point because we see ourselves as a conduit now to bring these different relationships Mm -hmm. together, right? Mm -hmm. We've had the good fortune to be in the boardroom with Bain. We've had the good fortune to spend time with the people at at Carlisle and at TPG and at all of these firms that you want to be in front of. We've also had the good fortune to spend time with a lot of the smaller private equity players over these 25 years or so. So now we see ourselves as a conduit of bringing all of this together mm-hmm. um, and helping not just the financial community, but also the entrepreneurial community, which is really the most important part of this. Right. It's not just giving them exposure here, right? Because exposure by itself doesn't get it done. It's providing them with the tools, with the resources, with the expertise, with the understanding of what you have to do in your business in order to be ready to do business at this level. What I don't want to see happen is entrepreneurs, you know, young entrepreneurs that have the talent, that have the understanding, that have the business ideas, that have the brand, that have the product, spend 25 years to get ready for this conversation. Right. Right. They'll miss it. Because they'll miss it. Right. And the rest of the market sees it and they'll go faster. Mm -hmm. So our job is to engage with them and to help them move so much faster. Thank you, Rich. In season one, episode three, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Mark Morial, an entrepreneur, lawyer, professor, legislator and a mayor. Mark is now the president and CEO of the National Urban League, the nation's largest and oldest civil rights organization. In this episode, I pick Mark's brain about the state of access to capital for multicultural and women entrepreneurs. The discussion underscores the import of private sector participation in the fight to address the inequities in the funding landscape. This is most plainly represented by the fact that black entrepreneurs do not have access to the generational family wealth that other entrepreneurs rely on to seed their growth. Let's hear Mark's perspective on this issue and the need for us all to support small, local, and multiculturally owned businesses. We don't recognize sometimes, you know, I'm I'm always amazed by the success of some of the tech giants of today. And the question I I always ask is, where did their first money come from? Mm -hmm. Not the first VC dollars you had. Your first money, invariably, it's from family. That's right. Invariably, it may be from some personal savings mm-hmm. or slash sweat, sweat equity. But it's family and friends who may, be, may have believed in them enough to put a hundred, or hundred and fifty, or 200000 behind them. And then they got that first VC mm-hmm. to give them a half a million or a million. And then they were ready for the second tranche. That's right. So many of our businesses, small businesses, particularly businesses from communities of color, may not have the family depth, right? May not have the family wealth. 
may not have the people that they can go to in the community to say, look, please give me $25,000. Well, if a person's got a net worth and, you know, got a half a million dollars in the bank, giving a family member, a friend or close friend $25,000 is not a small amount of money, but it isn't going to place them in a risk. But if you don't have any savings and a family member comes to you and says, would you support my business? You may say, I'd love to do it, but I can't give you uh, my children's tuition money That's right. that I've been saving for the last 15 years so that they can go to college. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. So we try at the Urban League to help businesses prepare themselves for the conversation. And, and you brought up a very good point here, Mark, because I think therein lies the crux of the issue with respect to access to capital for multicultural entrepreneurs and women. They don't start with a family and friends round in most cases. And they also lack the networks that lead them right to the venture capital community. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing. You started with the statistics about uh, entrepreneurs of color being the fastest growing segment within small businesses and particularly women of yes. color being the fastest segment. So what's interesting is that even with the lack of access to the family and friends rounds, they can get the businesses started. So now let's talk about the fact that they can't scale and what's happening institutionally when they uh, approach trying to get it. And it is things like, what's the credit like? What do you know about the business plan? What can you tell me about your forecast? So again, if I'm coming from the investor uh, perspective. I think this is a really unique opportunity, especially if I already have some know-how. Why is this I've always, so hard? I've, and c- because I think it's uh, always difficult to live down historic misperceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, which 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 can be based on racial and gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I ride the, the the countryside, so to speak, in the cities of America and. I'm I'm collecting business cards from entrepreneurs and people with ideas. Mm -hmm. They have the ambition. They're looking for connections. That's right. They're looking for capital. Mm -hmm. They're looking for contracts. Yep. You know, they're very bullish and optimistic. They just need access. So let me pull from your experience as a mayor. Mm-hmm. as a CEO of a city, because I happen to think that that's where some of our biggest opportunities are, is enabling entrepreneurs to, number one, understand the resources that are available at the city level, but also those who are in positions of leadership in cities and in states. I think that many of them don't know how to pull together the right team of people or, or, or the, the right cohort, if you will, to provide this capital and the access to capital to actually expand the growth in their cities. I decided at the beginning, because I had not only been a small business entrepreneur, I'd been a lawyer that represented a lot of small businesses. We created an office of small and emerging businesses within the city's economic development division. Uh-huh. So we started out doing very, very simple things, which was to be an information hub. Mm-hmm. We also brought the major banks in the community to the table and asked them to engage more closely with us, particularly around those small and minority businesses who were going to do business with the city. Mm-hmm. We revamped all of the city's policies to create targets and goals mm-hmm. for small and minority business participation. And I sought to extend 
the reach and commitment to projects that were not specifically city projects, but projects where the city provided incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, many cities will provide incentives such as uh, sweetheart lease deals for developers to develop office buildings or hotels or affordable housing. Sometimes you uh, provide tax abatements. We wanted people who do that to sign what we call an open access agreement, where they agreed to do business with small and minority-owned businesses and local businesses. The mayor's job is to also be a champion and a bully pulpit around why growing small businesses, growing emerging businesses, growing minority business is good for the overall community. Mm -hmm. We know that in one of the cities we've looked at has looked at deploying its uh, cash investments, if you will, towards small business lending. The thinking being, if we're investing in emerging markets mm -hmm. with taxpayer <laughs> dollars overseas, markets we can't even see, some of us can't even pronounce the That's names, right. why can't we invest our cash in emerging markets right here in our own community? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of enlightened thinking. Uh, that I think mayors can provide and elected mm -hmm. officials can provide. Let's leverage our assets. We had very, very large infrastructure projects when I was mayor. We expanded the convention center. We built a new basketball arena. I just absolutely insisted that there be minority business and small business inclusion in those projects. Mm -hmm. I told the major business owners in the city, when we put our multi-billion dollar infrastructure program together, I said, we're going to do 20-25% participation goals for minority and women-owned businesses. I want everybody to have an opportunity to sit at the economic table. You've got to say that when you talk about small businesses and minority businesses, it's not us against them. It's inclusionary growth, right? Everyone can participate. There's an interesting historical footnote that I always recount. After the Berlin Wall fell, Eastern Europe, which had been uh, communist, we provided 1% loans and significant cash investments because we wanted them to understand privately owned business enterprises. So we provided dollars the theory of the case was, why would the United States do it? Because, oh, they'll become our trading partner. Mm -hmm. They'll become, uh, if you will, customers for our businesses. I mean, low interest loans, very, very attractive loan guarantees in the name of expanding free enterprise. Mm -hmm. That same philosophy should hold within the borders of the United States. If you want to strengthen and expand the free enterprise system help more people participate. Thank you, Mark. In season three, we had the opportunity to speak to influential investors of color like Dr. Paul Judge. In addition to being the serial entrepreneur who started hyper successful tech companies like PureWire, Luma Home, and Pindrop, Dr. Paul Judge is also the co-founder of TechSquare Labs, a seed stage venture fund that has a strong history of investing in entrepreneurs of color. In this episode, 
Paul talks about the strong qualities exhibited by entrepreneurs of color that are often overlooked by investors. He frames representations of racism in the VC landscape through investors who claim that they can't find any opportunities to invest in people of color. Paul uses these stories to highlight the importance of hiring diverse teams of investors who are able to expand the deal flow into markets that are untapped and entrepreneurs who are underrepresented. I hope that his voice helps to illustrate for listeners that investing in black founders is not just a moral obligation, but a fiduciary obligation if your interest is in maximizing your returns for your limited partners. One of the things that Frida K. Poor Klein said to us is that one of the reasons that she loves investing with entrepreneurs of color and or women is that often they have had a lived experience that makes them uniquely qualified to mm-hmm. be able to solve the problem because they've been in it in a way that nobody else has. And they have, in fact, found something where there's a huge market opportunity. How do you feel about something like that as one of the criteria, if you will, for investing in an entrepreneur? Yeah, definitely. Uh, folks of color just have so many of the qualities that you want entrepreneurs to have. Oh, stop Just, right there. What are they? You know, perseverance, grit, you know, original creative thinking, resourcefulness. These are things that just to survive as a minority in this country, you have developed these skills across your life. And those are absolutely the skills that separate successful from unsuccessful entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And so those qualities that make a great entrepreneur are there. And from there, it's about equipping them with the tools to actually go and do the business practices and actually write code and then raise money and then get customers and so forth. But so many of the qualities are there. But then to your point and Frida's point, they've seen problems that others haven't seen. Problems that, you know, average person walking around Soma is not going to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether that be, you know, problems in black hair care, peer-to-peer lending and payday loans, or whether that be problems around babysitting and child care that our communities experience that are problems that need to be solved, that are billion-dollar opportunities that just aren't a problem in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so I I love those moments. Wow. How do you figure out who your partners are going to be from an investment standpoint? Because it sounds like you have an edge over a lot of investors because you spent time investing in the ecosystem. So people know who you are. They're likely to show you deals. So you, I would assume, but don't let me say this if it's not true, have no problem with flow. Most deals that get done, especially with women and people of color, you end up seeing them or knowing about them, correct? I see a lot of them. You know, part of it is being here a long time, being accessible, being part of a few different communities, right? Georgia Tech, as well as Morehouse, as well as like the chamber and the city. And so we're very fortunate that we do get to see a lot of the activity in town. Mm -hmm. That's a playbook point for investors who say they don't know how to get in. You have connected to several different networks. Go ahead. Oh, absolutely. And even I'll zoom in a little bit on on that. If you think about take a Georgia Tech, for example, is not only interacting with like the incubator, but also understanding and having relationships with the deans, but then also like the professors that have expertise Mm -hmm. in a particular area to know what every research lab on campus is working on. Yes, Right. And so what happens is we get a phone call pretty early when a new grad student or professor wants to spin out a piece of research. Our new undergrad has an idea that's similar. And so we've been fortunate that kind of the community calls us early for things like that. And then, yeah, when you think of folks of color, you absolutely want to make sure they're getting the meeting and you're giving feedback, even if it's not the right fit for you to invest kind of giving feedback and guidance on on what they could do to Mm -hmm. be a better entrepreneur and better business. Yes. And that was the other point I was going to bring up. What 
advice would you give to other investors who say, again, I can't find any. It sounds like the first piece of advice is to connect to the different ecosystems. Put yourself in a place where the intellectual resources are plentiful and then take meetings and give feedback, which was part of our recommendation from our trillion dollar report last year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go to where the diversity is. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we know where the capital is. And oftentimes you look around, you're where the capital is and you look around, you don't see a lot of diversity. Uh, but if you get on a plane, you know, there's diversity across the U.S. There's diversity in cities like Atlanta, cities like New York, like D.C. Miami. If you go to where folks are and sit down with them in their spaces, access is there. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it means like leaving your office, maybe leaving your town and going to the people mm-hmm. or, you know, adding diversity on your own team. Right. As a VC firm, mm-hmm. you know, if everyone in the firm looks alike, then entrepreneurs aren't going to necessarily be comfortable folks in the firm aren't going to necessarily do the the pattern matching. And so I think starting off with diversity on your team provides a significant advantage to a firm in being able to expand their diverse deal flow. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this question. To what extent do investment firms and investors have a moral obligation to be intentional when thinking about inclusive investment strategies? I think we could skip over a moral obligation and think just even about the fiduciary obligation that investors have to maximize capital appreciation to their LPs. And if you look at that obligation, it's about kind of finding markets that are untapped, finding entrepreneurs that are underrepresented. It's about expanding the way of thinking within their portfolios. That alone will lead intelligent folks to think about how to increase diversity in their portfolio and in their team. So we can forget about a moral obligation and just look at the fiduciary obligation and responsibility, and that will get us there. That will increase diversity on teams and in portfolios. Fair point and an excellent playbook point. You penned an article for TechCrunch called Greed Trump's Race, in which you wrote, and I quote, in many cases, people spend too much energy complaining that the playing field is not completely level instead of spending that energy playing on the field and leveraging the opportunities. So do you still believe this to be true? I do. I do believe that there's a lot more attention to diversity or the lack thereof in technology and in venture capital today than there was at that time. So I I appreciate that kind of the world is acknowledging the problem. Mm -hmm. There's not yet enough solutions and kind of prescriptive advice showing up to address it. So some look at it as an excuse still. Some look at it and say, oh, the playing field's not fair, so I'm going to sit here and make a career out of kind of complaining about it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you all for listening. In this watershed moment, I hope that we can use these stories of entrepreneurs of color as a source of understanding, hope, and a path forward. Through listening to and elevating their stories, we can more easily identify the economic manifestations of bias and racism. We can learn from each other, and we can work towards a more equitable funding landscape and society at large. Please share your questions and your thoughts with us at carlapod at morganstanley.com.